Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Energy Intelligence podcast series. Uh, I'm Abhi Rajendran from the firm's research practice uh, and, and head of our global uh, oil and downstream market analysis, as well as our North America focused research. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Emily Meredith, who is the deputy bureau chief uh, in our Washington, D.C. office. Emily, welcome and thanks for joining. Hi, Abby. Thanks. How's it going? Going great. Uh, so we're definitely looking forward to, to this discussion uh, for this particular podcast. We are going to be focused uh, on oil markets, uh, but but with a little bit of a, a, a geopolitical lens uh, in terms of the, the, the key areas that, that we're paying attention to. Um, you know, for oil markets, uh, you know, just to sort of set the stage, uh, I thought it would be helpful to just, you know, revisit our uh, view of oil markets looking ahead. Uh, you know, we, we began this year uh, with an optimistic view. Uh, and, you know, even though we were not sort of outright bullish, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, certainly a quicker than expected rebalancing uh, in, in oil markets, uh, you know, with, with Brent prices rising from 50 uh, I mean, all the way to 70, but but now sort of stabilizing in the mid 60s. Um, you know, we continue to see, you know, demand risks to be sure. Uh, you know, led by COVID, um, you know, related issues uh, in key emerging markets. Uh, of course, India, uh, Brazil, um, to name a few. You know, have been you know in the news lately over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but but our view is that you know even though there may be some demand softness for the market to deal with over the short term, uh, you know we believe that you know the restraint from a supply standpoint uh, is is, is going to be adequate to catch that weakness in demand. Um, so so we're actually less focused on the the demand side of the coin, uh, you know, and we do expect an improvement there, you know, as we as we get through the course of the year. Um, but we're actually more focused on the on the supply side. Now, our view, uh, you know, right now we're in the mid 60s uh, for oil prices. Uh, you know, our view is that we do expect prices to sort of strengthen back up, you know, close to 70, maybe even into the early 70s, uh, you know, into the summer months uh, and, you know, and, and sort of stay there in the second half of the year. Now, what we have flagged, it, you know, as probably the key risk to our view um, to the downside uh, is developments with, uh, with Iran. Uh, you know, in terms of the the, the U.S. Iran talks already being in a in a pretty critical phase, um, and you know, on that topic, you know, really there's there's no better person at the firm to uh, to dive into what's going on there um, than Emily. So, Emily, you know, you know, w- with that sort of backdrop having been set, uh, maybe I can hand it to you with just the you know, just to start off with the overarching question of you know where we are uh, with the discussions between. Uh, you know, the U.S. and Iranian governments um, and and what are they trying to hash out um, and, and where do things stand? Yeah. So right now, um, officials from the U.S. and Iran and the other member states of this 2015 um, Iran nuclear agreement are meeting in Vienna. The U.S. and Iran still, it seems, are not meeting directly. Um, they're in separate hotels even with European diplomats shuttling back and forth. Um, the, I mean, at issue here, right, is that neither the U.S. nor Iran are currently meeting the terms of this 2015 agreement. And that agreement was, um, you know, Iran traded restrictions on its nuclear program in exchange for an easing of sanctions 
Um, and the ones that we think the most about, obviously, uh, energy intelligence are the oil sanctions, um, oil and gas, I mean, oil and other products. So, so that is a, a key area, right? The, the key question right now essentially is, you know, to what degree does the Biden administration offer Iran sanctions relief? And to what degree do Iranian officials feel that they can accept the sanctions relief that the Biden administration is offering? And so there are a lot of technical questions um, at play here, you know, issues of, you know, upcoming elections and, and um, you know, the specifics of sanctions and congressional oversight and all of that matters a lot. But, but I, I really, I'm of the mind that at the end of the day, this is like a political question of, you know, willingness on both sides and whether there's common ground, you know? Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, and, and, and to take that point, you know, a little bit further, um, you know, you know, what, what is the path forward here? Um, you know, could we see something uh, materialize quickly? Uh, you know, you know, and, you know, it certainly seems like, you know the you know to your point that the political will and 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 the optimism is there um you know sort of in the air um you know could we see something um you know get get agreed to quickly or you know is you know are there sort of enough challenges that 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 will you know, sort of drag this out for you know many many more months ahead yeah i mean both are possible i think you you not to um follow off your question but i think you you could have something come together quickly if the two sides feel that there's common ground. Now, what um, they're trying to get at right now are the specifics of the sanctions that need to be lifted. And that is quite complicated. I hope I, I don't sound like I'm oversimplifying it. I mean, when former President um, Donald Trump left the deal and snapped back sanctions, it wasn't just that he put the sanctions that the U.S. had eased back in place. It was that the Trump administration levied sanctions both before and after um, it left the deal on Iranian entities that are critical um, for Iran's oil sales, but kind of on a different pathway. So we should think of like... Um, the National Iranian Oil Company and the Tanker Company and the Central Bank of Iran all is being sanctioned on multiple pathways. Um, one of those is, is terrorism. Um, and that is not related to the JCPOA. The US essentially said we're blacklisting these organizations for their work, I think with Hezbollah was the crux of the designation. That is going to be very difficult for the Biden administration to do a wholesale repeal. Um, it really, you know, the extent to which they feel they can repeal it politically at home um, is going to determine whether they, you know, do a wholesale repeal or they try to offer some middle ground where they do, you know, a license or offer some assurances um, to potential importers of Iranian oil and products. And so that's that's really, I think, what we're talking about on the U.S. side in terms of what's being hashed out. 
Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, you know, it certainly seems like, you know, some, some technicalities and, uh, and some, you know, and, and some ongoing, you know, challenges to, to work through. Um, but what's the, what's the role of, of the U S Congress here? You know, how, uh, do they, uh, sort of potentially stand in the way or not, um, in terms of a, a possible agreement coming together? Yeah. So when this deal was originally agreed, it was not a treaty um, from the U.S. political in the U.S. political sense in which, um, you know, it's agreed to by the president and then ratified by the Congress. And it was very clear from the outset that it wasn't going to be a treaty. And so Congress essentially gave itself a role under um, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. Um, and they can reject a deal. Um, that requires um, essentially, you know, since a Biden administration would obviously veto a rejection, it, it effectively requires a two-thirds majority to reject a deal. Now, the argument um, and why I think you're seeing Biden administration officials talk so much about compliance for compliance, essentially just returning to the 2015 agreement, is is because there's a there's no requirement under this review act to resubmit the same agreement twice, right? You're just kind of entering back into, into the thing that already exists that Congress already didn't reject. And so, you know, there you go. There was some talk um, a few weeks ago about potentially, you know, intermediate deals and, and smaller steps, you know, to build confidence because there, there's been a lot of confidence destroyed in the last several years. That, you know, a senior State Department official has been very clear about you know, that's not what's on the table right now. That's not what they're negotiating. And and I think that that is driven by the sensitivity to, you know, if this goes up on the Hill, it, it can be very difficult. You've got Democrats in the Senate now who, you know, did vote to reject the deal, including Chuck Schumer, um, majority leader during the Obama administration. So, you know, I think they want to avoid a vote. That doesn't mean you won't have... Um, Republicans claiming oversight, but they need, you know, Democrats to join on to that effort in order to um, tee it up for a vote. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think just to just to sort of summarize this, you know, I think, uh, you know, would it be fair to say that, you know, there, there, there's been, you know, certainly uh, steps made in the right direction here. Uh, it, it, it's certainly possible that a that a that a possible deal comes together um, you know, in fairly short order over the next couple of months, but, you know, but, but, you know, some key challenges and technicalities remain, uh, you know, from both sides. Uh, would you, would you agree that that's sort of a fair summary, Emily? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of, we're going to see a, a lot of, um, you know, not small details, but, but issues that come up throughout this process, even if we do get to a deal. You know, and I, and I think any one of those issues at the end of the day, you know, the Iranians say they want to see verification of sanctions removal. And the Americans right now are saying, well, we don't we don't even know what they mean by that. And and it is pretty complicated um, to think that the Americans could somehow prove that they are offering sanctions relief um, that the Iranians, you know, are comfortable with. Yeah, no, that, that that that's very helpful, and you know, and and I think one of the the other key points to highlight is that should a deal come together, um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the lifting of sanctions, uh, you know, at least to to some degree, would be a key part of that, um, you know, and which should 
you know, unlock uh, more, uh, you know, from an oil market perspective, more supply and more exports um, in fairly short order. Um, you know, just just to put some numbers around it, you know, uh, on our analysis, we already see, uh, you know, Iran exporting, you know, at least 400,000 barrels a day more uh, over the last couple of months compared to the end of last year. Um, you know, that might, you know, be, you know, including, you know, some things that are harder to track as high as, you know, five or five to 600,000 barrels a day higher. Um, so, so more Iranian supply, um, you know, led by, you know, uh, China as a key buyer, um, you know, is already in the market. This is already something that, that, that the market is contending with, um, you know, including OPEC plus at, as it kind of thinks about tapering its deal. But should a deal come together, you know, in our view, uh, you know, right now, Iran is producing uh, slightly above, you know, two and a half million barrels a day of, uh, of oil. Um, and we think they have the capacity to fairly quickly ramp that up by at least a million barrels a day, um, you know, in a matter of months, you know, maybe not get all the way up to you know, the 4 million barrel a day threshold uh, uh, quickly, but, you know, at least a little bit over three and a half million barrels a day, um, you know, which would mean that, you know, they, in theory, would have the possibility of, of, of unlocking another million barrels a day of exports onto the market. Now, of course, there's, you know, there's, you know, there, there, you, know you have to ask, uh, you know, who are the buyers? Will demand be there? Um, you know, OPEC Plus is also sort of in the process of tapering their cuts. So there will be competition as demand improves. So all of that, you know, will have to be factored in. But, you know, but but certainly Iran uh, will be an eager seller uh, in, uh, and, and perhaps a, you know, a, you know, will be pricing its oil to sell, uh, you know, given the, the many years of, of economic difficulty uh, that they've had. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is sort of a, a key risk that we're watching out. Uh, from from an oil market perspective, um, you know maybe to shift gears, uh, you know another area that Emily that you track, you know quite closely, obviously sitting in D.C., uh, you know our other, uh, you know key you know, sort of policy uh, developments from the Biden administration, um, and one of the other key areas that that we're focused on uh, is you know, the impact of of some of those policies from a, from a domestic supply standpoint, because you know we think domestic supply. Uh, you know, is going to be quite restrained here uh, over the short term. Uh, it's one of the, the the key reasons why we are constructive on on oil prices. Um, uh, you know, in general, because U.S. oil supply is not a disruptive force. Um, but but you know, where do we stand, Emily? You know, from the standpoint of you know of I guess the the outlook for future oil and gas development on on federal lands in particular. Um, you know, we're, we're right now, uh, you know, going through a review process, but, but maybe you could just shed some more light on that um, and, 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 you know, and, and what's ahead uh, with regard to those discussions. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think if the, if the Iran deal is, is something that'll materialize um, or if that question is, is something that could materialize in the next few months, I mean, when we're talking about leasing, um, on federal lands, I mean, this is this is an issue over a much longer time period. Um, so, you know, the Interior Department is in the midst of its review um, on drilling rights on federal lands. So far, they've talked to oil and gas companies in a public forum. Um, Interior Secretary Deb Holland said that right now they're soliciting input from states and local governments, which I think, you know, this administration is likely to take pretty seriously. You know, we saw New Mexico, which is the state that Deb Holland is from, um, come out right when the pause was announced, um, the pause on leasing and permitting, um, the permitting pauses ceased. But um, 
and New Mexico right away pushed back on that. So I think you know there is some sensitivity to what um, states want in their borders um, and what industry means to the to certain states. Um, but you know, big picture, I think the most likely outcome is um, you know either continued pause or perhaps restrictions around new lease sales. I don't think we're talking about, you know, a ban on new permits that just doesn't seem very likely, even if green groups are going to keep pushing for one. Um, and it's and it's the permitting activity within the leases um, that, you know, speaks to ongoing um, activity, right? So so I don't think that's what Interior is is talking about here. I think I think it's much more about newly sales um in the future right and and it certainly seems like at least over the sort of the near term that you know it seems like as this review uh progresses that 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 pause um is at least set to continue for you know for for a bit of time um you know until this is sorted out i mean i think in the big picture what the administration is trying to do right is is push you the u.s energy sector to zero and low carbon, right? And, and they're not trying to do that all at once in it, like they, they understand, you know, they have plenty of scientists working with them. They understand they can't just like, we can't just all turn on a new windmill tomorrow in our front yards or whatever. I mean, that's that's not what we're talking about, right? But But I think it does make sense that they are trying to deprioritize um, future oil and gas activity in the context of their goals, this makes sense, um, and prioritize um, zero and low carbon and energy efficiency issues. And and so in that sense also, you know, we are very fixed on the oil and gas permitting issue, but also the Bureau of Land Management has other priorities, including renewables on federal lands. And, you know, the Bureau of Land Management was really dramatically um, cut staffing wise under the Trump administration. And so, you know, they, they have a lot of competition for their time right now when you think about what this administration's priorities are. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the way you sort of put it is, you know, it's it, you know, the focus is to make a transition um, and, and the key part of that will, you know, will include sort of deprioritizing, um, you know, core oil and gas operations um, but I guess, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, would it be fair to say, you know, without sort of disrupting things too much, uh, you know, with, with, you know, with, over the next couple of years, right, in terms of state budgets and state revenues and, um, and, 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 and other operations? I think in, it's fair to say in general, right, like there are a lot of veterans of the Obama administration um, in the Biden administration, and they saw that attempts at regulations um, you know, wound up in the courts, were there for years. In some cases, you know, we still have, um, we still have lawsuits left over, right? And, and so, well, okay, you know, the goal isn't necessarily to regulate, the goal is to transition the energy economy, right? So, so maybe they need a different tactic. And I think we are seeing, you know, across the government, a different tactic play out. I mean, obviously they 
want to see lower emissions. They are working on that. And, you know, when it comes to vehicle fuel economy, when it comes to nothing. Um, but at the same time, I think we are seeing like the bulk of their actions more fixed on prioritizing supporting um, lower emitting forms of, of energy and transportation. Right. And, 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 and on that vein, you know, even some of the, the, the focus around, uh, you know, tighter infrastructure permitting, you know, you know, more environmental reviews and, um, you know, and, and of course, you know, for a focus on, 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 on flaring and methane emissions, things like that, um, you know, will, you know, you know, all go sort of hand in hand with that. Right. And, you know, and, and by extension will make it, you know, more difficult for the oil and gas industry um, to simply just, you know, go back to what they were doing before uh, looking ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when it comes to infrastructure permitting, I mean, we have seen the Biden administration is bringing a social cost of carbon formula with carbon at $51 a ton um, to environmental reviews. Um, they'll probably be doing the same for methane, which would have more acute implications for the gas projects. Um, and we haven't really seen that used in a regulatory context before. Um, so, yeah, I think it, when you, if you think of potential actions, you know, does it slow future oil and gas developments? I, I think it's fair to imagine there will be some um, potential regulatory action. Um, I think the decisions are harder when it is choking off, you know, existing um, activity. And, and I think we're seeing that, you know, with the Dakota Access Pipeline, right? We haven't seen the administration take a firm position on whether that should be shut down, despite a court giving them multiple times, <laughs> um, multiple chances to say that that's what they'd like to see. Um, I think those sorts of you know immediate actions are just they're they're more difficult politically um, than you know slowing future output, right? Right. No, that that makes a lot of sense, and you know, and and this this all generally jives with you know with with our supply outlook. Um, you know, right now. You know, U.S. oil supply um, is, you know, around 11 million barrels a day, you know, down from close to 13 million barrels a day at the start of last year. Um, you know, gas supply is also down slightly, but 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 faring better uh, than, than, than oil supply, you know, relative to to sort of the, the pre-COVID peak. Um, but certainly from an oil standpoint, you know, we think the, the supply recovery is, is, is going to be, um, you know, fairly muted. Um, you know, we've said this a year ago that, you know, we think you know, U.S. oil supply peaked pre-COVID. So we expect that 11 million barrels a day to sort of gradually increase to you know, maybe sort of low 11s, um, and you know, and, and and you know, assuming there's you know not any you know uh, overly stringent action from the Biden administration, we think that it could get back up to you know maybe sort of the the mid 11s, um, you know, by by kind of the middle of next year, um, as you know, especially if prices uh, continue to to remain firm. Um, but you know, but but even from there, um, you know, it, it, you know, just a lot of the the tightening and kind of the the reshifting of the of the focus uh, will simply mean that that maybe the recovery gets back to about twelve to twelve and a half million barrels a day um, in a base case, uh, but but not any higher than that. Um, and, and and certainly there's there's also a scenario where um, you know you know at least over the next couple of years you know companies probably still have enough permits um, in their inventories to sort of get through, um, but then it becomes more difficult if there's you know, kind of a more prolonged 
um, uh, you know, pause on, on, on new leases um, on federal lands, you know, which, which are still significant areas from a, from a supply standpoint, uh, both federal lands and waters. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, you know, our view from, an, you know, again, bringing it back to an oil market perspective has been that, you know, we think, you know, the, the $70 Brent threshold is sustainable over the next couple of years, uh, which would correspond to sort of mid to high $60 WTI, you know, and a key part of that is, uh, you know, is the U.S. supply uh, part being fairly restrained. Um, all right. I think uh, I think that's about the uh, about all the time that we have for today. Uh, you know, thank you for for joining this podcast, Emily. Thank you so much for your insights, both you know from a foreign policy standpoint and from a domestic st- policy standpoint. Um, you know, certainly appreciate your thoughts. Sure thing. Um, yeah, and and you know, and and certainly both Iran and uh, you know and, and domestic supply are, are certainly topics that you know are the two main ones that we're focused on. So we'll certainly coming be coming back to you on those. Um, you know, in, in, in further interactions. Um, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, Emily, thanks again. Um, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. All right. Take care, Abby. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com. Mm-hmm.